Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you're not already there. Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. Mark 6. Jesus had been rejected by the people of his hometown of Nazareth. John the Baptist had been executed and buried. The twelve apostles had returned from their mission tour. Herod Antipas, after hearing about the fame of Jesus, about demons being cast out of people and numerous miraculous physical healings, he actually believed John the Baptist had come back to life. All of this had happened in a very short period of time. So Jesus was trying to get away to a desolate place with just his disciples, and then he was overwhelmed by thousands of people who found him in that lonely, out-of-the-place, out-of-the-way place. The number was swelling to 5,000-plus from people traveling to Jerusalem on their way to the Passover. And they were hearing more and more about what Jesus was doing, his miraculous works of power and healing. So they sought him out when they found out where he was. But Jesus, as they gathered, had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. We read in Mark 6, verse 34. He taught them. He healed their sick for much of the day on that hillside on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. And then he fed them all, as we learned last week. If you were able, would you please stand as I read Mark 6, verses 45-2. Immediately... He made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May be seated. Now notice in our first verse, verse 45, that Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Some translations say forced them. The question is why? 
Well, we find out in John's parallel account, in John 6, 15, John writes, Perceiving then that the crowd was about to come and take him by force to make him king. On and on and on. It seems like the crowds may not have been the only ones getting carried away here. After being miraculously fed, the people were saying, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. John's account again. Well, could the disciples too have been too excited for their own good about what they had just seen Jesus do? Were they precariously close to getting in the way of God's timing for the son's death on the cross? So before this goes too far, our text says Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Now this may not have been the only reason that Jesus made the disciples leave by boat, but it had to be part of the reason. These apostles were men, and these men could be just as susceptible to the misplaced political plans of the people as anybody else. Why does Jesus also dismiss the crowd, as we read in verse 45? For the very same reason he made the disciples leave. The crowds were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus had taught them with authority, The sick had been healed, and every, every one of these people had been fed, miraculously filled up, and completely satisfied. The fervor of the coming Passover, combined with this growing unrest of the political situation, were all brewing a situation that Jesus perceived as being in the way of what he knew he must do. Do you see that the people here were offering what we could say is really a smaller version of what the devil had offered Jesus in the wilderness? The kingdoms of the world and their glory. All Jesus had to do here was bow before popular opinion as early, earlier he had been asked to bow to whom? Satan. With the direct offer of Satan, Jesus spent how many days in prayer before the devil came to him? Forty. And now here, he needed to spend at least a few hours alone with his father. That's what's going on. In verse 46, Mark writes, And after he had taken leave of them, what did he do? He went up to the mountain to pray. Now, it's probably about 7 to 8 p.m. by then. And Jesus prayed from then until he came to the disciples, when? The fourth watch of the night. Any sailors out there? It's 3 to 6 a.m. Okay, you can do the math. 
That means that Jesus prayed for six to seven hours after being completely exhausted physically in the first place. This was important. We must at least take a breath right here and realize the importance of what this says. In Scripture, we see that Jesus spent a tremendous amount of time in prayer. He prayed in lonely places, on hills and mountains, in Gethsemane, in the morning, the evening, and sometimes all night. Not only did he pray for himself and his purpose and mission, but also for others. The longest recorded prayer is in John 17. And there, in the first five verses, he prays for himself. In verses 6 through 19 of John 17, he prays for the apostles. And then in verses 20 through 26, for the church. He even prayed for his tormentors while he was on the cross. He prayed for Peter, that his faith may not fail. He prayed for the people standing around at Lazarus' tomb. And for us now, he not only makes intercession every once in a while, but actually as our permanent, eternal high priest. He lives in heaven for the very purpose of making intercession. In Hebrews 7.25, we read, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. In verse 47 of our text, we read, And when evening came, <clears throat> the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And then look how verse 48 starts out. And he saw that they were making headway painfully. For the wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea. John tells us in his passage how far they'd rowed before Jesus comes to them walking on the water. He says it was three to four miles. At least that's the translation of the actual measure of distance given, given there. And in John six eighteen, we learned that the sea became very rough because a strong wind was blowing. In other words, the point here is to make sure we understand that these guys are rowing. They can't use a sail. Our passage in verse 48, ours, says that when Jesus saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them, he came to them. And in Matthew, he writes that the boat was beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Does this sound familiar? They've already gone through this once. In other words, the disciples were rowing into a storm 
trying to get across the Sea of Galilee. And normally this trip would only take a few hours. It's only about five or six miles. But they were only a little more than halfway after six to seven hours. So this is a perfect setting for an incredible lesson on the object of our faith. The disciples were already confused and frustrated and disillusioned and disappointed. Why? Jesus had sent them away just when they thought it was all going to happen. And the hope of Israel was actually going to be seen and completed right there. And they were going to be a part of it. He sends them away. And these guys were probably wondering right now why Jesus would send them away to what seemed like certain death. And even with all this, they were trying to do what he had told them to do. I don't know if you're making any personal connections, but there's a lot of them, so feel free. Are you confused, frustrated, disillusioned, and disappointed with your Lord? But you're still trying to do what you're supposed to do, but it's just getting harder. They'd already earlier seen Jesus still a ferocious form, a storm that was certain to take them to the bottom of the sea, the bottom of the very same lake. But Jesus wasn't with them this time. Did Jesus know about their situation long before it happened? Your Sunday school answer is, of course. He didn't have to rush away from prayer in order to be on time to help them. The storm and the disciples were both in his hands. He already knew what he was going to do with both. Jesus waited a long time before he came to them, though, didn't he? This is very similar to when Jesus waited until Lazarus has been, had been dead for several days before he went to Bethany and then raised him. Now, in both these instances, Jesus could have come much sooner than he did. In both of these instances, Jesus could have performed the ensuing miracle without even being there. He could have prevented Lazarus' death and prevented this storm from ever rising up. But he didn't. In his infinite wisdom, Jesus purposefully allowed Mary and Martha to reach the extremity of their need before he intervened and raised Lazarus. And in his infinite wisdom, he purposefully allowed his disciples 
to reach the extremity of their need before he intervened and came to them on the water. He knew everything about all these people and had known it since before the world was made. And he knew infinitely better than they did what was best for their welfare and for God's glory. Our problem in even recognizing what God is doing and then being thankful that he works that way is mainly twofold. We have such a warped and small view of who God is that we cannot believe the world doesn't revolve around us in our desires, in our perspectives, in our opinions, in our plans. That problem then magnifies the wrong-headed ideas that we have about our own welfare. Let me ask you a question. <clears throat> How many times have you denied outwardly or in your hearts that God is good because what he allowed in your life doesn't fit your own definition of what is best for your own welfare. We think our welfare means that everything is the way we want and that it goes smoothly. But God knows that our sin nature has bent us into making ourselves the center of everything instead of making us Lord God Almighty, instead of making the Lord God Almighty the center of everything. So what we usually want actually moves away from knowing God and loving Him. And our affections replace God with anything and everything that we think makes us feel better or fits with our desires. Will we learn? What will it take for us to learn that God in His mercy and grace allows us to learn how empty and vain our desires are? By sometimes letting us actually have everything we want or what we think we want. And we end up finding so much of the time that when we get what we want, it ends up being actually nauseating and unfulfilling. Or God allows us to learn how empty and vain our desires are by letting us experience in painful ways how needy and not in control we really are. Anybody there? All of us are there, probably much more than we want to admit. In other words, our plans to fulfill our desires our own way blow up in our face, and then, of course, we blame God for not caring about us. Either way, we end up either recognizing our desperate need of God's grace in Christ, or we end up fighting till our last breath to rid ourselves of God's presence. Our middle names are too often 
Jonah. Jonah. Genuine believers who belong to the Lord and know they were purchased by his atoning blood are on a path in life that includes the personal intervention of God Almighty, whether we see it or not. He's committed. He's promised to opening your eyes and heart to the eternal value of knowing and loving and serving him. So if you don't have a right attitude, a right evaluation of your own sin nature, you're going to overvalue your plans, your opinions, your desires. And when those two things come in conflict, there is going to be a mess. But we usually stop right there. We need to know the eternal value of knowing and loving and serving Christ, who is the very one who made you and the one who sent his own son to save you from yourself. Jesus went willingly. He came here. And sometimes God's path is very painful and very confusing. But do we know that he is with us? That he is in us? You don't have to get to 66 years old to figure this out. Or to at least start considering. The earlier, the better. Johnny Erickson Tata was 17 when she dove off that dock in a lake. Into shallow water. And became a quadriplegic. 17. And she sums up her 50 plus years of being paralyzed this way. Are you ready for this? God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And it took her quite a few years to get there. But she has spent most of her adult, paralyzed life communicating the wonder and majesty of the Lord God Almighty. Paul Tripp, a little more descriptive, says it this way. God will take you where you never intended to go. in order to produce in you what you couldn't achieve on your own. And he calls that uncomfortable grace. But it's grace. We're tempted to judge the faithfulness of God based on his ability to remove difficulty from our lives. When in fact, Difficulty is almost always a sign of his faithfulness. Whoa. It's not a new lesson. These apostles literally got a taste of this in that boat. 
How many of us are angry at God? We may still put the face on here and other places, but we're mad at what he's allowed, at what he's done. question is, how can you be mad? How can I be mad at the God who has my eternal welfare as a priority? Well, how do you make this mesh? Now back to the boat. Maybe we'll get it a little better here. These disciples had expectations. They were with following somebody who could heal anybody, anytime, anywhere. He could cast out demons anytime, anywhere. They were ruled by Rome. And hated it. Could he be the one? The one to what? The one to get us out of this political oppression. That was their main expectation. So now, they have to go through this what really is an excruciating process of recognizing that it's Jesus coming to them, walking on the water. They finally see Jesus actually walking on the water and through all these incredibly fierce waves driven by a powerful wind. Our text says in verse 48 that he came to them walking on the sea and he meant to pass by them. What in the world does that mean? To pass by them. When you first heard that, what did you think? Probably something that the English doesn't make very clear. It makes us think that Jesus didn't want the disciples to see them. You know, he just, he wants to pass by them. He's, he didn't really want to go to them. But that's actually the very opposite of what it's saying. If he didn't want them to see him, he would have just stayed farther away from the boat. It means, this means that Jesus wanted to go by them, pass by them, so that they could see all of him in his divine glory. He wanted to make sure they saw him walking through this storm to them. Think Moses in the cleft of the rock in the Old Testament. Remember he said, I want to see your glory. God said, well, you can't see my face, but I'll walk by so you can see more than you're going to be able to deal with. Same thing. Do you think these guys needed to discover that they have a Savior who is able not only to still the storm, but to even use the storm as Highway 45? 
He's using the storm as his path to them. Don't forget that. He is using the storm to come to them. Remember their question after Jesus stilled the first big storm back in chapter 4? They said this, quote, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, is Jesus once again answering their question in a way that they should never forget? How many times is this going to take before they get it? Do you ever feel like that? How many times is this going to take for me to understand that my God is let? He could stop this right now. He didn't even have to let it happen. But he did. How Am I going to be okay with that? Because of who he is? So during, during this terribly frustrating circumstance in this storm, the disciples, you know, they could have been drawing on the truths about God Almighty they already knew about from the Old Testament they, they were very familiar with. The best one in the whole Old Testament is something Job says. Somebody else who had smooth sailing in his life. Job says in chapter 9, verse 8, he says that God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled on the waves of the sea. Isn't that incredible? So many psalms declare truths about God being omnipresent in his creation, including the sea. And omnipotent overall. What is he? He's our stronghold. He's our rock. He's our fortress. He's our shield. He's the horn of our salvation, etc., etc., etc. But this demonstration by Jesus as another declaration by him about who he was didn't penetrate these guys' terror and their fear. When they saw him, they thought he was what? A ghost. Verses 49 and 50, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Why didn't the disciples recognize Jesus? Partly because they didn't expect to see him there. Can you apply that personally? We gripe. We whine. We give up. We go into despair. Try everything we can think of to make our situation right. Do we expect to see God working in whatever circumstance looks so horrible to us to accomplish something that we couldn't accomplish in ourselves on our own? 
to know him better, more completely? That's the question. There's a lot more going on here that we must consider. <clears throat> the end of verse 50 says, but immediately he spoke to them. Immediately. Catch that? They cried out. They were completely off base. What did he do? I don't know how loud he had to say this, but he said it. And they heard it, and they saw him. And he said, take heart first. Take heart and then he said, it is I. You know what that is? Some of you do. I am. It's me. I am. Which is what? The personal name of God given to his people in the Old Testament. And then he says, do not be afraid. The divine personal name of God is how Jesus reveals himself to these men he had chosen to be his apostles. So this is another claim by Jesus that he's God. But the process of connecting all the dots really wasn't completed for most of these disciples until after his resurrection. Jesus reveals, by word and by deed, who he is. And he does that over and over again, but it's a long and painful process for these men. It's a complete paradigm shift in their understanding and thinking and just their tunnel vision about the Messiah is going to come to make Israel great again, which means I'll be great again, to make Israel independent again, which means we'll be on top. Do you see that? So there's two obvious lessons, and the second obvious lesson here is and they have to gradually and painfully learn this, but they'd still learn it. And that is that faith is able to look at unpleasant circumstances, not always as the working of some sinister power or plot, but instead as the manifestation of God's loving but maybe uncomfortable grace. Peter is also going to provide a personal illustration of this in Matthew's account, but only in Matthew's account. And isn't that weird? Mark got his information from Peter. Eyewitness accounts. And Mark doesn't include the next part, which is what? Every one of you knows. Peter wants to go out to Jesus in the water, and he does. But it's not in here. There's a lot of people have a lot of reasons why they think it isn't. I think that Peter doesn't want to draw any attention to himself in this, whether it was, yay, I've had faith for five seconds and walked on water, or B, and then I looked at the waves and I s started sinking, 
which is totally embarrassing. Okay, I think he wanted to make sure that this account that Mark was writing and the details there, maybe, maybe Mark interpreted all this and did it himself, focused on what? The object of our faith, not how much faith you have to have to walk on water, which is remarkable how many people go there only when they go through this story. True? You ever seen the Sunday school kids run out to the swimming pool after this in the summer? I'm Peter. Splash. The point is, not Peter. The point is the object of faith. We do know from Matthew's account that Peter's just overcome with now knowing the Lord he loves is actually there and coming to him, so... You know, Peter, he's all in, and he was. Can I sum it up like that? He cried out to Jesus, the object of his faith, which is proof that he really did did trust Christ. But on the other hand, his faith was weakened by what? The circumstances in his life, wind, waves right there. Just as our faith is often undermined by difficult circumstances or tragedies. Jesus rebuked Peter, not because he didn't have any faith at all. He did. He rebuked him that his faith was small, little. Spurgeon writes this, and then we'll go past Peter. Peter was nearer his Lord when he was sinking than when he was walking. Spurgeon. In other words, it was when Peter was in trouble that he was driven to Jesus and was closest to him. James Montgomery Boyce writes, it's exactly the same with us, and it's why Jesus permits storms to come into our lives too. As long as life is going along smoothly, we may be genuinely trusting Jesus for our salvation as true Christians. But our faith can be somewhat distant, abstract, or even peripheral. We trust Jesus, true enough, but if the truth be told, we also trust ourselves and our abilities. We may, be even, we may even trust ourselves more than we trust Jesus. Let trouble come, and suddenly we're confronted with our own lack of ability and weakness, and we are driven to Jesus simply because... We have nowhere else to turn. And it's in times such as these when our faith usually grows the most. But it's true, isn't it? And what's the climax of this whole event? You heard our passage. Did it look like a climax? It's a picture of actually three distinctly different but complementary pieces. One from Matthew, one from Mark, one from John. And the only way to understand this is to really understand what we've already been highlighting. Jesus' self-revelation of himself as God in human flesh was something these men had to process. 
so do we. They had to process this as they heard Jesus teach, as they heard him explain then his teaching, as they saw him miraculously heal all kinds of diseases and sicknesses and physical infirmity, as they saw him demonstrate his authority and power over evil spirits and demons, as they saw him demonstrate his authority and power over what? Wind and sea and all creation. As they saw him create thousands of meals out of nothing, meals they, they passed out to the people, as they heard him use the personal Old Testament name of God, I am as his own name, and they were astonished over and over by his care for them and his training of them. Verses 51 and 52, Mark, this is amazing. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. Is that what you expected? So let's start with Mark. In Mark's account, he emphasizes that the miracle of feeding the 5,000 plus people should have demonstrated the true identity of Jesus, but their hard hearts still prevented them from fully understanding what Jesus is walking on the water meant as well. You see that? They're cloudy. They were utterly astounded by this walking through a storm on the water. But the who wouldn't be? Everybody, you could say, would be utterly astounded. Their hearts were hardened. Now, this is not the same as the unbelieving and hateful scribes and Pharisees who are described uh, in some very harsh ways. But this is talking about men with small faith who still didn't see or comprehend that Jesus' divine nature meant that he had power to create bread and fish as well as power over everything he created. Sea, wind, I'm going to add one, gravity, In Matthew's account, we read that those in the boat worshipped Jesus, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. In other words, this miracle astounded them so much, they worshipped the one who performed it, but that doesn't mean they fully grasped what they declared as they worshipped. They responded correctly as much as they were able to with hard hearts. They worshiped and declared the truth about Jesus. But don't miss the point that we can also worship and declare the truth about Christ in worship without our hearts grasping the amazing majesty and holiness of the one we worship. Does your mind and heart stay on track and never wander as we sing, pray, and hear the word? Peter obviously took a step, no pun intended, maybe, yes, it was, in the right direction. 
But even he had no understanding that the Son of God must suffer and die in order to complete his mission, which he proves later when Jesus is close to being crucified. John, (laughs) this is really interesting. John just says, then they were glad to take him in the boat. I love that. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Uh, That's John, so I'm I'm not going to go there right now. But it could have just, it was there. I think these three accounts provide an honest assessment of where these men were in their growing faith. They were flawed recipients of God's mercy and grace who still had a whole lot of growing up to do. Sounds a lot like us. I don't know whether you've ever noticed this, but would you look at the ceiling? Looks like an upside-down boat. Here we are. It's a great illustration. We can also be sluggish and slow to see and understand the implications of and the conclusions from Jesus' miracles, you know, that, the, that directly affect, affect how we trust and depend on him in faith. I mean, really, if we truly grasped who it is that inhibits us with his own spirit, that, that inhabits us, not inhibit, that inhabits us in his own spirit, would we really fall apart about anything If we knew he really does have us in his hand, would we really be fearful about anything? Isn't it great we all have a long way to grow together? That's why we're here. Jesus uses real-life issues and circumstances to produce growth in our understanding and faith. He wants us to apply the truth we know from his word to these circumstances in life, no matter what they are. And it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus' own disciples, their process of growing and their belief and knowledge of him included a two-year college course, a four-year plan, a doctorate in theology? What did it include? Life lessons with Jesus' truth in his word over and over and over and over again. So much so that everyone but one of the real disciples, the 11, we're not talking about Judas Iscariot here. He was chosen for another reason to be a part of this group. All but John died martyrs' deaths. think they learn a lot God through these lessons was taking them where they never intended to go in order to produce in them what they couldn't achieve on their own wouldn't you just like to hear them around a table toward the end of their lives talking about man when Jesus said follow me when we were fishing along the sea I 
I never thought, I had no idea, right? Is that what we're saying now with your walk with Jesus? That knowing him is so worth it that you're glad you're alive, no matter what's been going on. He does the same thing with each of his children, uniquely fitted to who we are. And this is a process uniquely designed for how he made us and gifted us so that as together as a church, we may worship the Lord faithfully, apply his word supremely, and declare his glory to all peoples. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we confess our view of you is so small. Thank you for your word that describes how Jesus displayed his glory, the truth about who he was and his purpose to people just like us. Thank you for the hope that you give us only in Christ, that you use everything in our lives to make us more like Christ, to deepen our faith and trust, and to let us know it's not about just here. You're preparing us for an eternity with you. It's in Christ's name that we pray and hope. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? Thought you might enjoy um, a section written by Peter. See how he wrote to others about what he had learned from 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. You're dismissed.